due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's the morning of July 7th, 2005. You're a commuter on your way to another typical day at the office. That morning, you kissed your spouse goodbye and hugged your children. As you grabbed your umbrella from the stand by the door, you made your usual joke that one day the English would develop webbed feet. It was just like every morning. But this commute, your regular train in from King's Cross Station, is about to change hundreds of lives forever. As the train pulls away from the station, you settle into your seat and look through your planner. You've got a busy day ahead, but it doesn't matter. You're in a good mood as you daydream about the holiday your family has planned for the following week. You barely notice a handsome young man move to the center of the aisle near the front of the car. But his shifty movements finally catch your eye. You glance up just in time to see him press a button before your whole world is engulfed in a flash of light and fire. You and 25 other commuters on that train will never make it to the office. You will never make it home to your families again. Lying on the ground and everything. Right, and it, it was an explosion on the bus, was it? Uh, yes, there's people lying in the road. There's um, a London bus, it's a 30, I think. There's people trying to get out. I think there's ambulances on their way. Four explosions have been confirmed. First on a tube train between Oldgate East and Liverpool Street. Second on a bus in Woburn Place. Third on a tube train between Russell Square and King's Cross. And fourth on a tube train at Edgware Road Station. Eyewitness reports tell of the horror in which 52 people died and over 700 were injured. There was a loud bang. The train sort of seized off and ground to a halt. Then a whole load of smoke billowed through and was just tumbling through the carriage. I just heard a bang. I looked around, the whole top of the bus and the back of it just came off. We don't know at the moment how many bodies are left in the carriages. The work is extremely difficult, given the force of the blast and the conditions down there. And the, uh, the recovery teams are slowly recovering those bodies from there. But at the moment, we don't know how many are in there. Your name is among the other 52 confirmed dead that they read on the news coverage of the terror attacks across the city. Meanwhile, nearly 45 miles away, the bomber's wife sits at home with her two small children. She'll wait seven whole days before reporting her husband, your murderer, missing. When she does, she pretends to be naive to her husband's radicalism. The media dubs her the White Widow. Your family and dozens of others don't believe her claims of innocence. There's something about her, something they don't trust. Her name is Samantha Luthwaite. And yours is not the last death she would be responsible for. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals. Thanks for joining us today for our first episode on terrorist Samantha Luthwaite. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. 
And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Luthwaite is best known in the UK as the White Widow because of her marriage to the 7-7 bomber Germaine Lindsay. But to international authorities, Luthwaite is so much more than the wife of a radical terrorist. The now 34-year-old has been suspected of running a bomb factory, funding terrorist cells in Eastern Africa, and allegedly organizing the 2013 Westgate shopping mall attack in Kenya. In the first part of this two-part series, we'll discuss Luthwaite's upbringing in suburban England, her conversion to Islam, her marriage to Germaine Lindsay, and how his involvement in the 7-7 suicide bombings started her on a path to radicalism. In part two, we'll track Samantha's movements through Africa, investigate her suspected role in several terrorist organizations, and discuss theories on her current whereabouts in the world. However, before we talk about Luthwaite's radicalism and suspected association to terrorism, we must first take a look at the events in her childhood that drove her to be a supporter of the fundamentalist interpretation of jihad. Samantha Luthwaite was born on December 5, 1983, in Bambridge, Northern Ireland. Her father, Andrew, was a soldier in the British Army serving in Northern Ireland. While he was stationed there, Andrew met and fell in love with a woman named Elizabeth Christine, who went by Christine, and it didn't take long before the two were married. Within the first few years of the Luthwaite's marriage, Christine gave birth to three children, two daughters and a son. The youngest of the three was named Samantha. But the family couldn't bear the financial burden of that third child, so Andrew changed careers, relocating his family south to Aylesbury, England, so that he could work as a lorry driver. Located about an hour outside of London, Aylesbury is home to about 70,000 British citizens, according to the 2011 census. In 2011, 8.3% of the town's residents were Muslim. Aylesbury was where Samantha Luthwaite grew up. She attended the local primary school, went to church with her family, and hung out with her friends. All in all, her life was pretty normal and unremarkable for a schoolgirl in a southern English town. As a young girl, Luthwaite's family was close with the Aylesbury mayor, Raj Khan. Khan later told BBC about what he remembered of Luthwaite, saying that, quote, She was very innocent, lacking confidence, shy and very easy to get on with. She was a follower, not a leader, end quote. Khan described young Luthwaite as an innocent English rose. However, when Luthwaite turned 11 in 1994, her comfortable life was turned upside down. Her parents announced to her and her older siblings that they were ending their marriage. Luthwaite in particular took the news incredibly hard. She told her friends she felt betrayed by her parents. Luthwaite began to spend a lot of time with her neighbors, a Muslim family who made her feel welcome in their home. The family was close-knit and caring. They were everything that Luthwaite felt she was missing in her own household. The more time she spent with her kind Muslim neighbors, the more she began to express an interest in converting to Islam. The family answered her questions about their faith and encouraged her to study the Quran on her own to see if the ideas in it spoke to her. Samantha was an eager student. She told her friends that she deeply respected the Islamic pillars, especially the abstinence from alcohol and the emphasis on strong families. 
Her school friends from this exploratory time in her life described her as a likable person with a passion for social justice, especially for people in the Middle East. At age 15, Luthwaite made the decision to formally begin her conversion. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the rest of the episode. So just a quick heads up before we dive into all of that. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. Professor Stephen Rice of the Ohio State University Psychology Department posed the theory that most people turn to religion to fulfill basic human needs and desires. Two of the most notable of these desires are family and power. When Luthwaite's parents divorced, it was likely that she felt powerless about the situation. Their separation also made her feel uncomfortable in her own home. The tension of her split household was too much for her. Luthwaite's parents were also Christian. Samantha may have viewed their divorce as a betrayal of their marriage vows. She thought her parents treated their faith with carelessness, and it wasn't an example she wanted to follow. So her choice to become a practicing Muslim served Luthwaite twofold. Luthwaite was able to take control of establishing her own burgeoning identity by choosing Islam over Christianity. The conversion also brought her closer to her neighbors, the people who had filled the familial void in her life left by her parents' divorce. Because she felt distanced from her mother and father at this time in her life, she didn't pay much attention to their protests against her conversion. Both parents openly expressed their displeasure with her decision, but Luthwaite no longer valued their opinions. The more her parents advised against Islam, the bolder Luthwaite grew in her commitment to the religion. In 2001, during her last year of secondary school, Luthwaite only dressed in traditional Islamic clothing, called a salwar kameez, as well as a hijab. It was an isolating move for the 18-year-old to make, considering the United States had just experienced the 9-11 radical terrorist attacks in September of that year, followed by a growing wave of Islamophobia around the world. But Luthwaite didn't let this hatred deter her commitment to Islam. One of her teachers at the Grange School told BBC Radio, quote, She seemed to be really proud wearing the hijab. There was a bubbly feeling around her. End quote. Based on a series of studies published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, people turn to religion more fervently when they're faced with high-anxiety lifestyles. In Luthwaite's case, her passive nature and dissatisfying home life both seemed to be sources of great anxiety for her. Those that knew Luthwaite best said she was happiest when she was with Muslim families or engaged in Islamic study. Therefore, it didn't take long for Luthwaite to become wholly devoted to her newfound religion, and she quickly made friends in the Islamic community. She attended mosque with the other Muslims in the region, but she was one of the few practitioners who didn't come from a Muslim family. In fact, most of the Aylesbury Muslim community came from families that had immigrated from predominantly Muslim countries. Many of Luthwaite's fellow Muslims came from places like Pakistan, Morocco, Iraq, and India. The Aylesbury Muslim community became Luthwaite's family. She heeded their advice to pray often and study hard. And by 2002, her efforts were rewarded with a spot at the University of London. She enrolled in the School of Oriental and African Studies. Though Luthwaite was a good student, she said that her primary goal of attending the university was to find a Muslim husband and settle down. This was another way for Luthwaite to combat her fears of isolation and loneliness that haunted her after her parents' divorce. 
to start her own family. London was only an hour away from Aylesbury, but she didn't like being separated from the community she'd grown to love. She felt that if she could start a family of her own, one that could connect her always to the community she so loved, that everything would be perfect. According to British psychologist Amanda Pearl, people who go through sudden life changes and struggle to cope with the harshness of their reality can turn to two solutions to seek reprieve. They can either choose mindfulness and find a healthy way to sort through their anxieties, or they can turn to escapism. Pearl defines escapism as a way of attempting to make negative feelings dissipate without working through the necessary steps in order to come to relief through mental resolution. Having a perfect Muslim family became Luthwaite's preferred mental escape from the stresses of being young, alone, and visibly Muslim in a new city. It likely overwhelmed her, causing her to seek refuge in the familiarity of her faith. Perhaps this is why Luthwaite spent most of her time in between classes on Islamic internet chat rooms, discussing life and faith with fellow Muslims, instead of making friends on campus. According to a study published by the Journal of Palliative Medicine, people who turn to religion as a coping mechanism for stress and anxiety are more likely to develop an unhealthy reliance on that religion. They may become so reliant on their religion that they start to believe that it's the only reason for their happiness and good fortune. Luthwaite had already started to believe that much of her personal happiness was the result of Islam, long before she ever went away to school. But the isolation in London, combined with the sense of community she felt from those chat rooms, likely made her feel that her faith was the only thing in her life that made her feel connected and not alone. That idea fully coalesced in Luthwaite's mind when she met Jermaine Lindsay on one of the Islamic chat rooms. This was the man who she would later marry and who may ultimately have turned Luthwaite to radical faith. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to female criminals. Samantha Luthwaite's eventual husband, Jermaine Lindsay, was born in Jamaica on September 23, 1985. That's a little less than two years after Luthwaite was born. When Lindsay was just a year old, his mother, Mariam, left his abusive father and immigrated with her son to Huddersfield, West Yorkshire, to give her family a new beginning. Lindsay's home life had been unstable in Jamaica, but it became even less stable in the UK. He and his mother moved often, in and out of her boyfriend's homes. Many of these men were unkind to Lindsay during these formative years. When Lindsay was five, Miriam moved them in with another boyfriend, a kinder and more caring man than many of those she had dated in the past. For the next 10 years, Lindsay and his mother continued to live with this kind man, which provided him some stability during his childhood. But in 2000, the relationship ended just as the others had, with Lindsay's mother heartbroken and the pair of them without a place to stay. After this breakup, Lindsay's mother met another Jamaican immigrant, Abdullah Al-Faisal. Al-Faisal was known for his radicalist Islamic beliefs and encouraged Miriam and 15-year-old Lindsay to turn to Islam. The teachings Jermaine received from Al-Faisal were very different from the Islam Luthwaite had converted to and was studying. Luthwaite belonged to the moderate Muslims, as most practitioners of Islam do. They follow the belief that the Prophet Muhammad received a series of revelations from the angel Gabriel, 
Muhammad compiled these revelations into the Quran, the Islamic holy text. In most interpretations of the Quran, Allah, God, is merciful, just, all-powerful, and totally imminent in the world. Islamic believers use five pillars to worship Allah. The first of these pillars is the Declaration of Belief, which is a Muslim's commitment to believe in no God but Allah. The second is Salah, the ritualized prayer that Muslims offer to Allah five times a day. The third is Salm, the practice of fasting from sunrise to sunset during the religious month of Ramadan. The fourth pillar is Zakat. Zakat requires every Muslim to give 2.5% of his or her personal wealth to the poor annually. Hajj is the final pillar, and it is the ultimate show of Islamic devotion. To fulfill Hajj, a Muslim must make the pilgrimage to Mecca, the birthplace of Muhammad, at least once in his or her life. These peaceful and devout practices were what Luthwaite studied during her conversion. However, the Islamic teachings that Al-Faisal planted in Lindsay's mind were very different. According to the Heritage Foundation, Muslims who radicalize believe, quote, anyone and everyone opposed to their concept of the world is at war with Islam and must be treated as the enemy, end quote. They believe they are expected to be soldiers of jihad, or holy war, to protect Islam. Al-Faisal specifically was known for preaching that boys as young as 15 should be happy and willing to fight this violent interpretation of jihad. He told mothers that it was their duty to raise their sons to devote themselves to the faith in this way. When the Lindsays converted to Islam in 2000, they did so in a moderate mosque. But Al-Faisal continued to plant the seeds of radicalism in young Germain's mind. When he wasn't at home or at school, Lindsay could be found at the mosque. He quickly found his footing in the Islamic community. His old friends later told The Telegraph that they were surprised at Lindsay's dedication to his conversion, but they also said he didn't make a big deal out of it with them. He mentioned that he liked the sense of family and the structure. Mostly, he just shrugged off their questions and wanted to play sports or hang out. Lindsay's new friends in the Islamic faith were impressed by how easily he learned Arabic. He studied the Quran with great devotion, and Islam became the first thing in his life he could count on. The religion wouldn't leave him. It wouldn't leave his mother heartbroken. His life was looking up. Much like Luthwaite, Lindsay was beginning to rely on his faith as the sole source of his happiness and well-being. However, not long after Lindsay's conversion, Al-Faisal was jailed for hate speech in 2003. Around the same time, Lindsay's mother moved to America with her recent boyfriend. With his mother abroad and his mentor in prison, Lindsay was abandoned in London at the age of 16. Now alone, Lindsay dove even deeper into his religion to find solace and a sense of belonging. But instead of falling back on the Muslim friends he made at his moderate mosque, he turned to the radicals he had met through Al-Faisal. Lindsay became influenced by their propaganda and Al-Faisal's extremist teachings, even getting in trouble at school for passing out flyers with pro-Al-Qaeda messaging. Just as Luthwaite's hijab caused controversy post 9-11, Lindsay's distribution of the violent propaganda flyers just months after the attacks was not well received. He was brought before the headmaster and told to apologize. However, Lindsay refused unwilling to accept that his actions were wrong. Instead, he left school. 
He supported himself on government benefits and by working many odd jobs. Some days he would sell plastic phone cases on busy street corners. Other days he would find carpentry work or other skilled labor jobs. Still, Lindsay had plenty of free time, much of which he spent on the same Islamic chat rooms as Samantha Luthwaite. The two first connected when Lindsay was still living in Dalton, and Luthwaite was living on campus three hours away in London. The pair hit it off right away. Luthwaite and Lindsay chatted almost daily about life, religion, family, and more. They kept in contact online for several months. In 2002, now 17-year-old Lindsay met a 29-year-old Irish Muslim convert, Aoife Nadia Malloy, who was living in a town near Dalton. The pair matched through a dating service and met for the first time on October 22, 2002. Malloy told the Huddersfield Daily Examiner that Lindsay's first words to her were, have you got any character flaws? Shortly after, on the same day they met, they were married in a traditional Islamic ceremony in which the two said, I wed you three times. This union was not legally recognized by the UK as the proper paperwork was never filed. On their first night as a married couple, Malloy said she heard Lindsay talking to Luthwaite on the phone. She was heartbroken that he was flirting with another woman just hours after their marriage. She said, quote, I was furious, but he said he was going to marry this woman too, and that the Quran said he could, end quote. Before that night, Malloy believed Lindsay was of the same mindset as most modern Muslims in the Western world and did not condone multiple marriages. She also knew that Lindsay was aware of the UK's strict laws against polygamy. After their rocky start, Lindsay and Malloy spent one very tense week together. They prayed and discussed their marriage. The whole time, Lindsay was still in contact with Luthwaite. They discussed their future together and talked about the kind of lives they wanted. At the end of the seven days, Lindsay told Malloy he did not want to be married to her. He said, I divorce you, three times. And by Muslim custom, he no longer saw himself as Malloy's husband. She left and never spoke to him again. Lindsay immediately contacted Luthwaite and told her that he was traveling south to London to attend the Stop the War March. This was a big event, organized by the Stop the War Coalition to protest the war on terror following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Lindsay told Luthwaite he would meet her at the event in London's Hyde Park the next day. 18-year-old Luthwaite and 17-year-old Lindsay met in person for the first time that day and immediately connected. Lindsay was everything Luthwaite was looking for. He was extremely devout and caring. Meanwhile, Luthwaite was exactly the type of wife Lindsay wanted. She was white, educated, and obedient. All three qualities that Lindsay believed elevated his social status in the eyes of his Muslim brothers. They bonded over their strong faith and a desire for a stable family. The same day he met Luthwaite for the first time in person, Lindsay married her in another Islamic ceremony. Remember, this was just eight days after his first wedding and one day after his divorce. Lindsay used the Arabic name Jamal, which means beautiful, while Luthwaite chose Asmantara, which roughly translates to the heiress in Sanskrit. Their selection of names says a lot about their state of minds as they entered their marriage. In Lindsay's case, it seems to suggest an elevated sense of self. At the very least, it was Lindsay's way of convincing himself that nothing was wrong with him 
and that he was not to blame for being abandoned by his mother. Luthwaite's choice to call herself the heiress suggests that she felt she was inheriting the perfect life she always wanted by marrying Lindsay. And for a time, she was right. Luthwaite was thrilled with her new life. In her eyes, her husband was the epitome of a perfect Muslim man. Shortly after their marriage, Luthwaite left school. The couple lived together in Aylesbury until 2004, when they moved north to Dewsbury. The couple prayed together five times a day and regularly attended mosque. The community saw them as a shining example of a Muslim couple. In 2004, Luthwaite gave birth to their first child, a son whose name has never been released to the public. But after the birth of their son, Luthwaite claimed she noticed a change in Lindsay. She told friends that he stayed away from their home for long periods and that he had become uninterested in their child and in their life together. Perhaps Lindsay felt as though there were other, more important things he needed to focus on rather than spending time with his family. Lindsay was still in contact with Abdullah al-Faisal. Lindsay had also kindled a friendship with another Dewsbury resident, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, whom he first met as a child in Huddersfield. Khan was born and raised in Leeds, England, to Pakistani immigrants. He worked as a primary school teacher's assistant in Dewsbury, but he was heavily involved with Islamic extremist group Al-Qaeda. At 30 years old, Khan was 12 years older than 18-year-old Lindsay and 10 years older than Luthwaite. Just as Al-Faisal had done before he was jailed, Khan acted as a mentor to Lindsay, introducing him to new, more violent radical Islamic ideals. Luthwaite claimed that she didn't know where her husband was disappearing to when he would go and spend time with Khan. His absences deeply affected Luthwaite, whose only wish was to have a tight-knit, happy family. The last thing she wanted was to get divorced like her parents had. She and Lindsay stayed together to work on their relationship. And in November 2004, she found out she was pregnant with their second child. During this pregnancy, Luthwaite begged Lindsay not to leave her alone so frequently. Lindsay decided to introduce her to Khan and include her in that part of his life. Luthwaite bonded quickly with Khan's wife while he and Lindsay attended jihadist meetings and met with other extremists in southern England. It's possible that Luthwaite became aware of the nature of Lindsay and Khan's work together during this time, though we don't know how much she contributed to their plans. Khan was much higher in the radicalist circles than Lindsay. He had already proven himself a loyal and true believer in their cause to protect Muslims from Western governments in this new post-9-11 world. For this reason, he was frequently called to the Middle East to meet with al-Qaeda leaders. After British intelligence services filmed him in attendance at an extremist gathering, Khan was put on a watch list. They made note of every time he traveled to the Middle East. Foreign intelligence officers sent back reports that Khan received education in guerrilla attacks and military training from al-Qaeda fighters during these trips. Every time Khan returned to England, he and Lindsay grew closer and spent significant amounts of time together. Their connection and frequent meetings made government officials suspicious of Lindsay, and so Lindsay was also placed on several watch lists. What the government didn't notice was how frequently Luthwaite and her children accompanied Lindsay on his visits to Khan. Luthwaite and Lindsay quickly became favorite companions to the Khans, an association that elevated them in extremist circles because of Muhammad Khan's rising acclaim. The Khan's next-door neighbor told Real Stories documentarians that he saw Luthwaite come to the Khan household several times in December 2004. 
Luthwaite would even stop by their home to keep Khan's wife company while he was out on these trips to the Middle East. While Lindsay was rising in the extremist ranks, Luthwaite mostly kept their house in order, raised their children, and contributed to charity work through her local mosque. We don't know what she knew about her husband's plans, but if she knew anything, all of Luthwaite's actions during this time would have eased any possible suspicions. Lindsay, who had always lacked a strong father figure, was eager to please both Khan and, through him, his father figure, Al-Faisal. According to Dr. Edward Crook, boys who grow up without a father figure in their lives often suffer psychologically. They can develop low self-image, behavior problems, and criminal records. They're also more at risk to be taken advantage of or exploited. All of these things were true about Jermaine Lindsay, and he wanted nothing more than to please the older men in his extremist circles. But Luthwaite quickly grew frustrated with her husband's long absences and divided attention. She told her friends that she suspected him of having an affair. Most of Lindsay's time was spent with other radicalists, as Luthwaite likely would have known. But in fact, Luthwaite was not wrong about the affair. Nikki Blackmore, a woman living in Aylesbury, told BBC that in late June 2005, she and Lindsay were in a relationship. On their second date, Lindsay asked Blackmore to get him a gun, stating that he intended to teach some people a lesson with it. Blackmore refused and said that Lindsay dropped the subject and never brought it up again. Blackmore described how Lindsay read her Al-Qaeda poems to try to persuade her to convert to Islam. He also invited her to take a trip to London with him in early July. Blackmore, who was busy with work, declined and tried to arrange another meeting at a later date. Lindsay responded, I might be around then, but then again I might not. However, the affair wasn't the only reason for Lindsay's long absences. From early June to the day Luthwaite kicked him out, when Lindsay wasn't with Blackmore, he was with Muhammad Sadiq Khan. The pair was planning the largest domestic suicide attack in the UK since World War II. Regardless, all of this suspicion from Luthwaite came to a head in July of 2005. When Lindsay came home on July 6th, Luthwaite asked him to move out temporarily. She was eight months into their second pregnancy, and she wanted him to get his life back on track. In other words, she wanted him to stop cheating and be home more often to lead the household. She didn't mind if religious business kept him away, but she did not want to share her husband. At least, this is what she claimed after the attack Lindsay and Khan had been planning took place. It's also possible that she kicked him out so that she would have reasonable deniability. Perhaps Lindsay wanted to give her an out with the government so that she could say she didn't know anything about what they were planning. Perhaps this was always part of the plan. Maybe Luthwaite knew that this was the last time she would ever see her husband alive. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue the story. On July 7, 2005, the day after 21-year-old Samantha Luthwaite asked her husband, Jermaine Lindsay, to leave their home, extremist Mohammed Sadiq Khan led Lindsay and two other Muslim radicals in a series of terrorist attacks across the city of London. The morning of the 7th, all four men took an early train into London's King's Cross station. There, they split up, three of them boarding a different busy train during the morning rush hour. The first three bombs went off at 8.50 a.m. 
Khan detonated his explosive near the Edgware Road station. He was responsible for the deaths of seven people, including himself. Eyewitness reports tell of the horror in which 52 people died and over 700 were injured. There was a loud bang. The train sort of seized up on ground to a halt. Then a whole load of smoke billowed through and was just tumbling through the carriage. I just heard a bang. I looked around. The whole top of the bus and the back of it just came off. Lindsay's bomb went off between King's Cross and Russell Square. At only 19 years old, His suicide bombing made him responsible for killing 27 people, including himself, the most to die in the 7-7 bombings. The third train bomb was detonated by Shazad Tanweer between Liverpool Street and Aldgate stations. Eight people, including Tanweer, were killed. At first, authorities believed that the explosions in the underground were caused by power circuit failures. Initial investigations quickly ruled that out. As the city erupted into panic at the possibility that it was under attack, 18-year-old Hasib Hussein detonated the final bomb at 9.47 a.m. on top of a double-decker bus in Tavistock Square, killing himself and the final 13 victims. The underground stations were closed. Public transport stopped. Several of the motorways in and out of the city were shut down and cell phone companies in the area reached maximum capacity as everyone tried to phone in injuries. Later in the day on July 7th, Charles Clark, the Home Secretary, made a public announcement that the bombings were an act of terror. He encouraged the city to remain on high alert while investigations were conducted. By the end of the day, 56 people were dead and 700 more were injured. We will pursue those responsible not just the perpetrators, but the planners of this outrage, wherever they are, and we will not rest until they are identified and, as far as is humanly possible, brought to justice. Conspiracy theorists suggested that the attacks may have been conducted by British or American forces as a way to increase ill feelings toward Muslims and justify the war on terror. However, authorities were able to use footage from the station's security cameras, forensic evidence, and information gathered during eyewitness interviews with other known extremists to identify Khan, Lindsay, Tanweer, and Hussein as the perpetrators. According to the Sunday Times, uh, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, uh, a 30-year-old British Muslim, was scrutinized last year by MI5, Britain's domestic secret service, but was not regarded as a threat to national security or put under any surveillance. Khan's involvement led both the MI5 and the CIA to link the attacks to the extremist group Al-Qaeda, based on the taped confessions Khan left with his family and Tanweer left in his apartment. In his video, Khan blamed the Western government for the violence against Muslims around the world. He said, quote, Until we feel security, you will be our targets. And until you stop the bombing, gassing, imprisonment, and torture of my people, we will not stop this fight. We are at war, and I am a soldier. Now you too will taste the reality of this situation. End quote. While London mourned and asked why, Samantha Luthwaite sat in her house with her two children. She did not attempt to call her husband, nor did she let anyone know he was missing. Did she know what he had planned to do when she kicked him out on July 6th? What happened during those days following the attack, and what went through Luthwaite's mind is a mystery. It wasn't until July 13th, 2005, 
six days after the suicide bombings in the London Tube, that Luthwaite called the police helpline that was set up for victims' families. She told the operator she believed her husband was one of the missing people from the suicide bombings. At first, she was hesitant to give them his name, but eventually she told them she was married to Jermaine Lindsay. Following this breakthrough, police immediately brought her in for questioning. Luthwaite denied having any knowledge that her husband was planning the attack. Meanwhile, the investigation continued. Police found a short letter that Khan left his wife and newborn daughter at their home in Dewsbury. The letter said, quote, Sorry I can't be there. Hope you understand. I love you all, and, God willing, will meet you the best of places. End quote. The investigators asked Luthwaite if Lindsay left a note or video behind for her. Luthwaite then explained that she'd kicked her husband out the day before to give them time apart before they reconciled. She came across as a shocked and grieving wife. In one of her statements, she said, quote, Germaine was a loving husband and father. I'm trying to come to terms with the recent events. My whole world has fallen apart, and my thoughts are with the families of the victims of this incomprehensible devastation, end quote. When news of Lindsay's involvement broke to the public... Luthwaite's home was firebombed by local boys during the night in an act of retaliation. She and her son barely managed to escape. They were later moved to a police-protected safe house on the other side of Aylesbury. The government was keeping Luthwaite safe to ensure they had a chance to question her fully. They questioned her for two months, and they discovered her earlier associations with Khan and his family. Luthwaite continued to paint herself as an innocent widow in the press, but government agencies weren't completely convinced that she was naive about her husband's plans. After Lindsay's suicide bombing, Luthwaite's mother came back into her life. According to a neighbor, Luthwaite's mother visited her daughter and grandchild every day after the bombing. They even took a trip to Disneyland Paris together. Luthwaite's mother saw Lindsay's death as an opportunity to sway her daughter away from Islam and bring her back in contact with the family. Yet, despite the pleasant visits and the smiling photographs, Luthwaite never believed her mother really cared for her. In her diary, she wrote about how her family didn't know who she really was. Luthwaite's mindset here shares some similarities with martyr syndrome. According to Dr. Lee Outlaw, a church consultant with a PhD in psychology, people with this martyr syndrome usually hide their personal belief that they're superior to everyone else and entitled to the very things for which they claim no desire, by making those around them feel guilty for a past transgression. Whenever Luthwaite's mother tried to lure her away from her Muslim faith, Luthwaite retaliated by saying her parents' divorce was the reason she joined in the first place. Her mother would quickly drop the subject and offer to help Luthwaite with bills, groceries, or anything else she might need. But Luthwaite wasn't only journaling about her issues with her family. She often wrote about her desire to be useful in the jihadist cause. She called herself a mujahid, a fighter, and she alluded to the jihadist ideal of attacking non-Muslims for revenge on the people of Islam. In September 2005, Luthwaite gave birth to a daughter who would never know her father. In the weeks following her second child's birth, Luthwaite was approached by the son, a popular tabloid newspaper in the UK. They offered her around 30,000 pounds for her story. 
She happily accepted the payment and told the reporters that she was a peaceful and devout Muslim. She asserted that before his death, Lindsay never advocated for violence, but he was tricked into extremism by powerful members of the jihadist movement. Luthwaite's story was not received sympathetically by most of the victims and the families affected by the attacks. In fact, many of the things she said in her story directly conflicted with evidence gathered from other people in the investigation of the attacks. For example, Lindsay's sister told the police that her brother had converted to Islam when he was 15 years old, but Luthwaite told people that he was a brand new convert. Even after lying to the press several times, Police weren't able to attach any of the responsibility for the attacks on 7-7 to Luthwaite. But because of her association to Lindsay, she found it too difficult to continue living in Aylesbury. A New York Times article studied several family members of killers and found that they're most often blamed for their relatives' crimes. The author posited that this was because the killer himself was no longer around to face justice, and society viewed the killer's loved ones as an acceptable alternative. Luthwaite did not want this for her children and thought it would be best to move to the Midlands in England. She did this in relative secrecy, and no one was sure of her exact whereabouts or actions from late 2005 to early 2006. However, in an interview with Real Stories, Abdullah al-Faisal, the man who encouraged him to convert to Islam, told documentarians he and Luthwaite were introduced by Lindsay via phone before he died. Al-Faisal said Luthwaite reached out to him for the first time on her own in 2006. He claimed she expressed an interest in marrying a jihadist. An entry from her journal during this time described how she wanted, quote, a husband who would terrorize disbelievers the way she felt terrorized as a Muslim, end quote. By 2008, Al-Faisal used his connections in Eastern Africa to find Luthwaite a husband in Mombasa, Kenya. He gave her the contact information for Fami Jamal Salim, a known Kenyan radicalist. Luthwaite spoke to him over the internet for six weeks before making the decision to travel to South Africa to meet him. She left quickly and quietly, without telling her landlords or neighbors where she was going. Using a fake South African passport purchased for her by Al-Faisal's contacts, she used the name Natalie Faye Webb to get herself and her two children out of the UK and into Kenya. In July 2008, she arrived in Johannesburg, South Africa, and was given the red carpet treatment. After all, she was about to become the wife of one of the jihadist movement's rising stars. The day after her arrival in Johannesburg, Luthwaite and Salim were married. They spent the first year of their marriage moving around South Africa while Salim made contacts with other known terrorists. Luthwaite was seen keeping records for him and arranging meetings. A year later, in July 2009, she gave birth to her third child, a son whose name is not public. Her son's birth didn't slow down her work. She continued to assist Salim while she raised her three young children. Salim lavished her with the best clothes and furnishings. Neighbors commented on how she rode around in a black Mercedes and always seemed to have a new cell phone. To outsiders, Luthwaite and Salim were just a well-off Muslim family who kept to themselves. But inside their rented estate, the couple was preparing for a move back to Salim's hometown of Mombasa, Kenya. This move would begin a new chapter in Luthwaite's terrorist activities, her increasingly violent ideals and growing role in extremist Muslim circles earned her the nickname 
the world's most wanted woman. Thanks again for listening to our first episode on Samantha Luthwaite. Join us next week as we cover Luthwaite's connections to Kenyan terrorist activity, her alleged role in the Kenyan mall attack, her suspected connections to an all-female terrorist cell, and her mysterious disappearance. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. We hope you'll join us next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Vanessa Richardson and Sammy Nye.